Chapter 22, The Final Word Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Psalm 69, 4 It's hard to know how much Jesus was told about his own story when he was growing up in Mary and Joseph's house. But my guess is he heard it all early and often. In the Gospel of Luke, right after the shepherds left the manger to tell all the people they could find about the baby from heaven, Luke says Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Of course she did. She was a new mom. And that's the kind of thing moms do. I've watched my wife cuddle up with our kids on the couch and tell them stories about themselves from when they were little. They eagerly ask all the old questions again and again, and she is only too happy to tell the tale one more time. It's not hard to picture Mary holding Jesus and telling him once again about the angels, the shepherds, the star, his miraculous cousin John, the old prophets in the temple, the wise men and their gifts, and all the scriptures that had come true surrounding this singular birth. And I'm sure Joseph told Jesus about his lineage the people who had come before him in the ancient and proud family line, and how they could trace the promise all the way back to the very beginning, to Abraham himself. After Jesus grew, lived, died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, one of his disciples named Levi wrote an account of his life and ministry, death and resurrection. We call it the Gospel of Matthew, and he wrote the book to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the promised king Israel had been waiting on for thousands of years. And he opens the book the way that you might present a legal argument to prove Jesus' kingship, by giving the Messiah's genealogical credentials. Now, as a kid, reading the Bible for myself, I was always confused by this huge list of names. I mean, why would the New Testament start out so boring? Why not kick it off with a really cool miracle of Jesus to kind of draw everyone in and get their attention and then, you know, deal with the boring legal stuff later? But Matthew was on a mission to demonstrate Jesus' messiahship. So right out of the gate, he essentially says, here's the proof that Jesus alone is qualified to lead us. It's in his blood. That list of names is 17 verses long, and it includes tongue-twisting difficulties such as Rehoboam and Zerubbabel. The Jewish people kept these kinds of ancestral records on file at the temple for everyone in the country, because tribal affiliation decided property disputes, custody battles, and all kinds of other important matters. One curious fact worth noting is that because Levi, or Matthew, recorded this genealogy in his book before the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple in A.D. 70, Jesus is the only Jewish person who can legitimately trace his heritage all the way back to King David and Abraham, simply because everyone else's records were burned in Titus' fire. Jesus' genealogy includes some of the greatest heroes of the Jewish faith, but there are also some strange inclusions. Or maybe the best way to put it would be to say that Matthew emphasizes certain names that come as kind of a surprise. In other words, if his goal was to show the untarnished royal lineage of the king, 
why did he focus on certain names so deliberately? Specifically, why did he list women in this genealogy at all? People in the first century didn't treat women very well. For the most part, they didn't respect women or value their opinions. Women didn't really hold property, inherit estates, or testify in court. They had no political voice. Even so, Matthew mentions several women. Not only that, but the women he lists were, for the most part, notorious sinners and outsiders. Tamar, for instance. She tricked her scumbag father-in-law to have sex with her in order to secure her life and bloodline. Rahab was a foreigner and a prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile from a different continent who married into the Jewish faith, and Bathsheba cheated on her husband with the king in the Oval Office while her man was off at war. These were not women of royal pedigree. They were actually the kind of people everyone hated and talked about. The thing is, the more you dive into these women's stories, the more you find out they weren't so messed up after all. I think they were all probably just doing the best they knew how. Sure, they sinned, just like everyone else, and several of them were opportunistic and even deceptive. But when you know their whole story, you can't really blame them. For most of them, their lives were hard, and they were the victims of unkind, cruel, and selfish men. These women were the kinds of people that folks deeply hate, but they hate them for all the wrong reasons. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to include these women in a legal document proving the authenticity of Jesus' claim to be king of the world, unless the proof works the other way around. In other words, what if Matthew included them not because they bolstered Jesus' reputation, but because Jesus rehabilitates their reputation? You see, it's not that Jesus was lucky enough to be born into this amazing lineage of super saints. It's really that they were all a bunch of hopelessly needy sinners, just like everyone else, who somehow got to be a part of what Jesus was doing, even though they didn't deserve it. Everyone who reads that list of names honestly has to contend with the fact that it is absolutely filled with scoundrels, villains, murderers, and creeps. Those women are nowhere near the top of the naughty list in Jesus' family tree. There are people who have a stake in Jesus' glorious royal title who deserve to be hated. There are men on that list who should have been arrested, prosecuted, tarred and feathered, and then drawn and quartered. And some of those guys are in heaven right now. And that's why Jesus came. Psalm 69 says, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. When you get to those last few chapters of Matthew's book, the people of Jerusalem are screaming with all of their might for Jesus to be crucified. The leaders of the people were working the crowd up into a frenzy of hatred. The emotion of the moment whirled up into a fury of its own as malice and bloodlust erupted like a volcano of loathing. Men and women stood screaming, foaming at the mouth with pointed fingers and furrowed brows about Jesus. Somehow, they despised him. They utterly detested him and wanted to see him not only beaten down, but destroyed. 
And yet, what had Jesus done to deserve this? One time Jesus said, Who here can prove me guilty of sin? No one could. Peter said he went around doing good. The foreigners in the Decapolis said he has done everything well. Jesus only ever loved. With every beat of his peerless heart, he loved sacrificially and beautifully, and he was repaid with hatred. People hated him for no reason at all. He didn't deserve it. He should have received love and gratitude forever from every single beating heart, but he was hated. And that is why he came. He came to pay our price. He came to absorb the hate we deserve. He came to personally bear the responsibility for our sin and feel the effects of all our wrong. The long list of names Matthew gave to prove Jesus' right to be king wasn't something to brag about. They were just the first names Jesus had come to cover for, the first to be transformed by his perfect record. We would be next. He bore all we deserved and gave us his love.